Welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. I'm Stephen McGregor. This is episode 25 on the quest to mainstream empathy with Michael Vondergeest. My son is practicing his numbers. Um, he's five years old. He speaks three languages on a daily basis here in Barcelona, English, Catalan and, and Spanish. So we're making an additional effort at home to, to practice his numbers. And what he does is he washes his hands. So he counts to 10 uh, in different languages while he's washing his hands. And the change that we've done just in the last couple of weeks is that we're moving on to, from 1 to 10 to 11 to 20. So he's now washing his hands for those 20 seconds. And I was thinking about this recently in the context of coronavirus, which is just everywhere now. Um, you know, at the start of the year for us at the Leadership Academy Barcelona, it was a little bit of a nuisance in terms of some of our conversations and some of our projects. Uh, and now, given that most of our work is in Europe and the virus is um, you know, changing from this slightly bizarre um, thing on Asia-Pacific, it is now firmly within, within Europe and having a real material effect on things here. We're finding real changes in, in terms of uh, the work that we're doing here in Europe. And there's a lot of commentary going on in terms of this is perhaps not the the last type of virus that we're going to see like this in the new world. And the lasting effects that coronavirus is going to have even when it's gone in terms of the world of work and from Bill Gates to the Financial Times, there have been things that have been um, uh, talked about. And just with my son practicing his numbers, it put me in mind of some of these lasting changes and particularly just this simple thing of hand washing. You know, I think I've seen this everywhere now from videos with, uh, uh, you know, research scientists on the BBC website on the right way to wash your hands uh, from the kind of what seems like global frenzy to find uh, hand gel in pharmacies uh, and face masks and a lot of the pricing controversy on Amazon regarding these products because they're in, in, uh, in high demand. And it just made me think in some of the things that we've done in sustaining executive performance over the years, particularly in hand washing. And the first case was um, what I often talk about in a lot of my workshops is the, the transformation of uh, Great Britain in track cycling from a mediocre performer at the Olympic Games, you know, winning only one gold medal in 100 years to unprecedented success in the last three Olympics and winning 22 gold medals. Uh, and, you know, quite commonly known, at least in the UK now, was the strategy that is the cumulative effect of marginal gains. And we use this a lot within the context of habit hacking within the lab and behaviour change and believing in the power of small change, especially when you build that in on a daily basis and you have that cumulative effect. But we talk about this transformation on British cycling within workshops and how the team looked at previously inconceivable, crazy measures to make the difference in these very tight races where often the difference between winning and losing comes down to the width of a tyre wheel. Uh, and the big uh, example that I often give that really captures the imagination of people is that the Great Britain and Northern Ireland team, they got the cyclist to talk to a surgeon in London uh, pre-Beijing uh, Olympic Games, and this surgeon taught the cyclists how to wash their hands. And the biggest factor in the common population uh, catching the cold is a lack of thorough hand washing. 
Uh, and in that respect, you know, you'd better believe that a surgeon knows how to wash their hands thoroughly. And there's a real protocol for following washing your hands and different steps and different parts of the hand. And what most of the population do is they neglect the area on the back of the thumb. And the back of the thumb is where different pathogens and germs can live and it results in us catching the cold. And in this context, in 2020, it is one of the main factors in the spread of coronavirus. Um, so just being surrounded with that, you know, habit change uh, and, and now people may be going ahead and thinking a little bit more mindfully of washing their hands, then I think that's just an interesting factor on, on lasting change. I'm going to read two paragraphs pretty quickly from the Sustain Executive Performance book, which actually takes us a little bit broader. And this is from the audio book, um, but I'm reading it now live. And it continues. So what is the practical takeaway for you? That you wash your hands more thoroughly? Maybe it is. Especially if you have a high incidence of catching the common cold. A meta-level research study by the Canadian Medical Association Journal in January of 2014 brought together more than 20 years of research into the common cold. How to catch it less often, and when you do, how do you spend less time with it? The big conclusion? You guessed it, hand washing. If we take greater care in washing our hands, this has a much greater impact on the cold than any type of vitamin supplement or drug. Hospitals know this only too well. With an acute appreciation of the danger of disease and germs spread between wards by well-travelled and overworked nurses in particular. Yet can you ask nurses to wash their hands 50, 100 times a day? Even the recommended washing time of 20 seconds can feel like an eternity. Try it. So instead of disrupting the daily operation of the hospital in such a significant way, not to mention fight on a cultural level with behaviour change, they made it easy by simply placing hand sanitizers on the back of each door, with the desired habit to have a quick spray and clean when entering and leaving each ward. Hand washing has also been at the core of Unilever's sustainability strategy and particularly its sustainable living plan building on the traditions of a company in which millions of children took part in a clean hands health campaign in 1920s America, hand washing classes have been offered in rural India since 2002. Ex-Unilever now, CEO Paul Pullman, extended this across the developing world with more hand washing work offered in the years 2011 to 2015 than in the previous 20. The 21-day course using Unilever's Lifebuoy soap has been shown by independent studies to reduce diarrhoea cases by 25% and increases school attendance because children are sick less often. So, coronavirus, learning your numbers, making a difference in high-performance sports, catching the cold less often, and even things in the developing world like reducing cases of diarrhoea in young children and increasing school attendance, all from a simple habit change of hand washing. So in terms of the lasting legacy and effect of coronavirus, if we can all wash our hands a little bit more thoroughly and we keep with that practice, maybe we'll be healthier going into the future. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting bringing together maybe kind of disparate um, issues into to one aspect of, of current affairs. Let's go on with this episode. I had a great conversation with Michael in December. If this is a continuation of the theme, the new thematic focus that we're having in the podcast uh, and Q1 is well-being and professional services. And in London, just prior to Christmas, 
I interviewed Artie uh, in, in, in Deloitte uh, one day and then the next day in EY offices I interviewed Michael von der Geest who's a partner in EY and he's the CEO of EY Seren and I was very interested to talk to him because Seren being you know, the design thinking agency and I was interested to see how that really worked within this broader uh, organisation of EY. And look, I know I say this in every episode because I am so grateful um, with the time that my guests give me and I'm really excited when I release a new episode. Um, and I say that I think this is a great conversation each episode, right? But I really think this this was with Michael. And the difference is, is that normally when I have 30 minutes um, with a guest, uh, I don't feel there is enough time to dig into the details. And I feel that really there's two or three episodes that are required to go beyond the kind of, the, 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 the you know, the niceties. And, and look, in previous episodes, I think we've covered a, a lot of interesting episodes. But in this episode, due to Michael's merit absolutely as a, as a guest, you know, I think in, in a way I'm maybe getting better at interviewing and asking more powerful questions and getting to the point. But I just felt in this 30 minutes, we really dig down on some very important and key messages uh, for the, the future working world. Um, so a lot of what we talked about was, you know, this theme of well-being in professional services. And he was talking about his work in Serum, which is the two DTs, it's digital transformation and, and design thinking. And the, right there, you see the mix between human and technology, which is driving a lot of changes within well-being. We looked at the growing importance of the global people survey, at least in professional services. So leaders are really being held accountable to that. And he sees that as one of the main uh, shifts or factors in mainstreaming well-being and professional services. And then we get to this core of uh, what he does in CERN, which is deploying empathy. And that gives us so many things, right? And especially within professional services, it actually gets us to stop and pause and not just force feed what we think might be the answer, but actually have this very question-driven approach and dig deeply on fundamental needs. And he talked about how, you know, you, you may come up against cultural resistance and you're not going to actually deploy some sort of change within an organisation. If people within that organisation are maybe worried about their jobs or thinking about paying their mortgage or, or, or family security, right? So... This very design thinking, human-centered approach is digging down to these needs, which I think uh, is very applicable for this topic of well-being and how we can mainstream that within within business. The additional thing I think is very interesting. There's there's so many points in this, but he talks about you know what are the people needs and not the organizational needs, right? So what are the people needs that we can look at first? Um, he talks about things that he's doing with his team. Uh, in terms of you know exhibiting this behaviour of empathy on a day-to-day -day basis. And a lot of that is just having a dialogue, giving people permission to talk about which could be even you know quite uh, controversial subjects, but actually co-creating the solution uh, together. And then we look at kind of ma more macro factors and, and looking at this kind of post-like, post-marketing BS uh, world and how technology can actually drive more positive change uh, bearing in mind the, the kind of the new value set that he's seeing, and I think we're all seeing in the younger generation, 
um, and how that can maybe drive positive change going into the future. Recognising that a lot of political change and a lot of other factors around the world perhaps aren't so progressive and, and aren't so positive. Um, and he says, you know, towards the end, he says, empathic corporate institutions may be the future for this world, and I'm trying to build one. Um, so I'm very grateful to Michael for his time in this uh, episode, episode 25. It's the second part of the theme, well-being and professional services. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode as ever. Keep well, keep safe, keep washing your hands, uh, and I'll see you next time. Keep well, amigos. Ciao, ciao. Bye. So good morning, Michael. Welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Um, well-being and professional services, they're not the most comfortable of bedfellows. Uh, how do you see that whole space and, and the evolution of well-being and professional services the past few years? Well, I think it is, and it, it, it can be sometimes seen as a, a bit of a contradiction, maybe, but I suppose my approach on it and my stance in a way is I'm not a well-being officer. I'm literally in the field, working the business, kind of on the core face, if you like, and looking at it and thinking, how do we, it's a weird word, but how do we institutionalize and make it part of the muscle memory of the whole organization to think about the notion of the well-being of the individual? I think it is, it is coming to the fore. I think it's, it's gone through various mutations over the last few years, whether it's emotional intelligence into you know, mindfulness and beyond, but I think it's about, for me, it's about giving the organisation a sense that the individual and the well-being of every every individual, not some individuals, is fundamental to business performance. Not an add-on, not a CSR thing. It's fundamental to business performance, in my view. And I think what we need is we need more and more advocates, particularly at leadership level, who show that, think that, and believe and behave that way. That's my kind of own sort of stance on it, I think. Is there a leap of faith required for that? Because, you know, you don't need to convince me, um, and, and I think we can see it in a lot of the research on a, on a discrete level, you know, in terms of engagement, attracting talent, all these different things. But measuring on a, on a concrete level is, is still difficult. And in professional services especially, you know, you guys... You look at data, you want evidence, you, you, you kind of rely on that. Are we there yet in, in proving that on, on a data level or, or do, we, do we just have to have that leap of faith? I think we're getting there. I think if you look at data-driven decisions and it's kind of like it's big in tech and it's big in professional services. Show me the numbers, show me the business case. We'll invest in the areas that shows the return on that investment. What I've seen in the last, and it's been a journey I'd say of about 10 years, um, the Global People Survey has become a fundamental tool of professional services. And now what you're seeing is you're seeing senior leaders potentially getting dinged for their GPS surveys, their Global People Surveys. You know, you've got call tricks and all these guys doing those things. And they're done, you know, every year there's a consistent benchmark. You're benchmarking yourself against the competition and your clients, and I'm, and I'm seeing, particularly in the last three or four years, the notion of that counting in the balanced scorecard measures of the most senior leaders. That's the big change. So they're now saying, what do I do about that? It used to be predominantly cost of hiring and attrition were the measures. 
So it's like, what's our, what's our unmanaged managed attrition level and what's our cost of acquisition of hires? They were the two measures that senior leaders in the core of the business I'm talking about, not in HR, not in wellbeing, any of that stuff, the core leaders would say they were their measures. Now, global people surveys, and I would say that's the same for virtually every professional service organization at scale in the world, they are now paying attention and getting remunerated on the basis of that being not equal yet, let's be clear, not equal, but being one of the measures. Revenue and margin still naps everything, but it is a measure now. That's only happened in the last three or four years. Yeah, no, that's interesting and it's important, it's critical to have that incentive, right? Uh, and I always remember some of the previous research I did in corporate social responsibility, um, and we, you know, whatever lip service you give to it, it's not gonna, you know, get to where we want it to be until it gets on the incentive level of, of the senior leaders, right? Um, so that's interesting. So, so as you're saying, the leaders are now being held accountable yeah. in this level, in, in well-being. Do you see, you know, is there is there a certain style of leadership that's required? Is it a generational thing? You know, do some leaders find it more difficult than others to take this on board? How do you see that? Is it, is it leadership styles, essentially, or is it generations, maybe? Again, I think it's kind of interesting if you take a professional services lens on this one. If I look inside rather than my clients for a minute, um, we work on pyramids, right? And what you're seeing is now in the organisations, you've got baby boomers and Gen X managing a totally fundamentally different cohort from upbringing, you know, from outlook, from values in particular. And what they're seeing is they are now recognizing the more enlightened, not all of them, are thinking about and managing and leading a totally different demographic. Because if you just think about how a, what a triangle looks like, what a pyramid looks like, there's more people coming into the pyramid than there are in the middle of the pyramid. And what we're seeing is now people acknowledging they have to manage all of the team not just the senior manager director pool that they're directly interacting with. And that I am seeing a, a change to an extent in leadership style. The other big tectonic plate, if you like, that's coming into that is BME and gender, which actually is having as big an impact as the global people service. So I think, you know, what's, what's changing in professional services? Three things. The, the genuine rise of gender and BME, meaning more inclusive, more diverse leaders need to be shown. The second one is the generational shift. And then the third one is that we are now being measured on people's satisfaction of their lived experience. And that they're the, these are fundamental shifts in professional services, but just to play that more broadly, they are equally fundamentally shifting my client base's behavior as well at the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and those three things, I think, lead us in perfectly to the concept of empathy, which kicked off our conversation, um, you know, when we first met a couple of months ago, um, and the importance of empathy in leadership. And I think empathy as a term is becoming, you know, part of the kind of standard lexicon, let's say, in, in management circles, whether that be the growth of des design thinking as a, as a methodology. Um, so many people understand what empathy is in terms of being able to, you know, walk in another's shoes and understand fully from their perspective uh, and from their point of view. But what is empathetic leadership? Do you have a view on that? I have a very strong view on it, actually, and 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 it's interesting. I mean, I'm 
I run a bit of our business we'll talk about a little bit later, which, you know, people say to me, what do you do in your bit of the business, which is largely around design thinking and digital transformation, we call it that, simplistically, to a little bit of it. People say to me, what is it that we do? And I've now, I've got an unapologetic, clear narrative. This is as the CEO of this business. I say, what we deploy to our clients is empathy. And then I stop mm-hmm. and I pause mm-hmm. and I look into the eyes of the client and I say, that's what you're buying off us, empathy. And I get an interesting response on that. And they say, and it's brilliant because what this is, what do you mean? Then you're into a dialogue of saying, well, you know, that's genuinely what we're deploying because human behavioral change, which is largely what we're doing, but we're using technology to, to deliver that and growth of organizations for me, as a consultant to a client, not working in that client, the thing I deploy is empathy. Because most of this stuff is like, silos in businesses are a massive issue. How you break down silos is not by saying, stop doing that. Because that just builds the silo up even more. What you do is you empathize and think, why is that person behaving in that way? If I understand why they're behaving because of their measures, their metrics, their incentives, how their merit, you know, their merit, but all that sort of stuff, what they're under pressure for, what's the day job, I can change it. I can work with them to change it. If I can't, if I don't deploy empathy first, it doesn't work. It's really simple. And it's that sense of, and, and I struggle with it a lot in terms of personally, I have a tendency towards when I'm leading the business, I'm under pressure, I lose empathy because I move towards metrics. The metrics of profit, margin, utilization of my people, all this sort of stuff. Is this person any good? Should we be transferring out the business? It's an up and out model. All that kind of thing I've been learned. I've learned since I was like 18 how this works. And then I have to stop myself and say, deploy empathy, stop. Because otherwise I'm just kind of running this business in the wrong way and it's not gonna work. I love that. You know, even the question and the way that you present that with your client it's indicative of the whole approach about just having that question-driven approach. It's not about force-feeding them the answer necessarily, right? Which in a way, I mean, I, I know professional services that it's all about, you know, doing the research, hypothesis-driven, and, but a lot of it is about the temptation at least is this is what worked in a very similar type organisation, so this is probably the way that we should go here. But I just think what empathy gives us in the whole approach of design thinking is just you focus on the question rather than the answer. You don't even get there, right? And then you you have the pause. You don't just go um, 10 a dozen and you tell the client what you think that they need. You really open it up and you go back to basics, right? And you, and, and you think on the importance of the of the diagnostic, which is there in professional side. But I just think that makes the emphasis on that. I really like that. And it's interesting because I think, you know, everyone talks about, you know, are they an analytic, are they a driver? You know, that language is very common when you're thinking about how you meet a client's needs, when you're thinking about the sale. You know, everyone kind of talks about, oh, they're an analytic, so we need to kind of give them data or this or that. And it's interesting because there's a tendency towards particularly higher end consultants thinking they're going to be the smartest person in the room. Got to have the answer. Got to have seen the movie before. That's kind of generally how you go in. But every context is different. And what I always talk to the teams about is saying, well, do you understand what's driving that person's needs? And they go, yeah, yeah, no, it's a business case of that. I go, no, no, I asked you about the person, not about the organization. Can you go in and understand what their needs are? 
Um, and then when you start to understand that, then you'll know what that solution is. But that's just one person in the organisation. So the next meeting you've got to understand their needs. The next meeting you've got to understand their needs. And you start to build a picture of what's driving that organisation's behaviour. And you know, it could be fear, it could be like quarterly results. Yeah. And if they don't do it, they're going to get sacked. Now, if, you, if somebody's going to get sacked for not delivering quarterly results, and you're telling them to believe in a three-year transformation, you're going to fail. So you have to think about, well, what, right, okay, what can we give them? Like sometimes, it's like, what can I help to keep them in a job, mm. to keep to pay their mortgage, to get their kids in school, to get you know, like these are like fundamental needs so how can you get onto the analytics and the data when somebody's in a room literally worried about their job yeah yeah you're getting down to what drives each of us right on that on that basic level you know there's different elements here even coming back to your initial comments there on when you're in the midst when you're really in the in in the trees and within an assignment and a project you can lose empathy yourself very easily because you make it all about you Right, in, in your own kind of daily needs, you're busy, you've got your own issues, your own pressure points, and it's, it is easy to lose that, that side of things, right? And, and, and then see it from the other, the other view. And then the other thing that you touched on, in professional services, you get you know, the senior consultants who may be afraid of this type of approach, which is about you know, prototyping, failing, you know, question-driven approach, not having the answer, not being right first time. All of these different things, right? So in many ways, a lot of this approach is counterculture to the mainstream approach in personal and professional services, right? How have you found that? Have you have you found that cultural resistance with you know Seren within this larger entity of EY, and how have you managed that? It's a significant challenge and a significant opportunity because I look at it and um, I suppose I I would I would probably understand enough now to understand that at a personal level I'm seen as a very different style and approach of leader perhaps than people would typically expect of an EY partner you know I, I typically find that I get a per, I get a certain reaction because I don't fit that perception of what people think of when they think this person I'm meeting is called Michael Fondergeist and he's an EY partner Imagine what that creates as an image in their mind before they meet me. And then they meet me. And it's a bit disconcerting. And I know that. And I use that deliberately to kind of to allow me to have a very different approach. And it's the same internally. You know, I don't necessarily fit some views of what an EY partner is. And to me, you know, you've got to be an agent of change. And 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 I, I put a lot of stock in authenticity. I've talked a lot in my career earlier, like about putting the thing on the table rather than underneath the table and saying, well, I think there's a vibe in here which is as follows. And, you know, maybe we should talk about that. And that can be quite disconcerting, but also can be quite empowering when people start to process that dialogue. And that is kind of what I'm on a journey of inside EY. And I see us as a, it's a massive social experiment because we're at scale, not a small bit of the business, we're a scale bit of the business now, particularly in the UK and Ireland. And it's a massive social experiment saying, look, this is really successful. It's really productive. Now, the reason I get permission to do that is that bit of the business is successful. If 
we weren't a successful bit of the business, we'd be given zero permission to do that because it's still driven by the data metrics of yeah. margin, revenue, etc. So to me, it's like yeah, that's what you've got to draw into the organisation and have a very different dialogue. But you have to be consistent, can't change your dialogue, and you have to be authentic. The notion of authenticity is big now, I think, in my head. It was like, it was something I'd heard about 10 years ago. I remember, authentic, authentic leadership style. It was a big buzzword, seven, eight years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Post-emotional intelligence, it was then authenticity. I actually really like that because I feel like my job is to create a vision and be authentic and then stop my ego getting in the way and be empathic. If I do those three things, I think I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And and it lays the foundation for that mindset that you need to bring to the style of, of leadership, right? Um, what else is in that space of empathetic leadership on a kind of more operational day-to-day basis? And do you you know, directly, you know, train your team in Seren to kind of exhibit, let's say, daily behaviours that are representative of a more empathetic style of leadership, anything in that kind of space? I think what we put most emphasis on is um, dialogue. Individuals opening up different forms of dialogue is how we're trying to do it. And it's it's a bit, it's a bit kind of um, test and learn almost, you know, because that's what we believe in. So for it, I'll give you an example got a senior leader in our business, director level, running a big bit of our design practice. Um, and he talks openly about um, having had and experienced mental health issues and he still suffers from chronic pain. And he feels comfortable that the environment allows him to talk about that. And what he finds is people come to him and say, it's amazing as a director that like, you're talking about chronic pain or uh, like your mental health issues because I've, I've experienced that. Um, another example is recently there's been a lot of press uh, um, I don't know if you've picked up on this around um, gender politics in professional services big article in the FT around whistleblowing across all of the big four um, EY included um, we decided to publish that to all our people so they could all read the article because it was behind the firewall so I thought people need to see this hear this have a dialogue on this that would be seen as a bit counterintuitive like Put a hot spot around a piece of failure, I think, in, in some of the leadership styles and talk about it. But I actually think that means that people see it as we're having a dialogue around it. Yeah, yeah, um, it's giving people permission, right? Totally. So yeah. what we're doing is we're trying to give people permission dialogue. And we're open to the fact that it's an imperfect world as well. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of saying, look, not all of this is quite right yet. But if we have a dialogue about it, then well, we're Let's all... find the answer together, right? You're not, you're not giving people, you know, saying this is the policy... You're kind of saying, this is a chaotic, emergent world. Let's find out the way forward together, right? And every organisation sits there and says, well, the policy's on the website. Why have you not looked at it? And you're going, yeah, how many people look at the policy on the website? What they do is they look how leaders are behaving and middle management is behaving and cultural norms, and they say, that's the policy, <laughs> right? It's not on the website. Nobody's going to look at it. People look at it and go, oh, that's what we've got to do. Like nobody looks how to fill a timesheet and when they start working as a consultant, everyone tells them what to do and they learn how to fill a timesheet in. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at um, trends in, in empathy, you know, I read some research recently that found that um, university and school uh, aged children had lower levels of empathy compared to the past. 
Um, so whether that be you know technology related or you know less face to face social interaction and things online where you kind of lose that humanization. Um, it is a bit alarming because just at the time when we need more empathy within business, uh, and if it is true in the mainstream that younger people have less empathy, then then we've got our work cut out. You know, yeah. um, what what do you see in the young people coming in uh, to to your side of the business, or, or do you have any views on on just changing levels of empathy in the in the human races uh, in general? I, I seek to remain positive in the face of I think some big things that are happening and I think the the two big things that I look at which are going to have a potential impact are macro politics and the, that polarization of politics particularly between the left and the right or however you want to define that axis and that axis I then think the rise of technology and how we interact with technology and how we use technology to network I think they're two big issues or two big things happening I think the way I look at it is you know having kids like seeing more young people having a workforce that has a long a lot of young people in it I I'm not sure like at a micro level there's some empathy that work that's got to be done but I think that happens through being in society and contributing but I also see a set of values which are fundamentally good and true and hone and, and right. And I look at how what how do we talk about that anyway? Seren is when we talk about after I've talked to clients about we deliver empathy, the next thing I tell them is we have three core values of what we do. The first one is the notion of um, the individual in relation to well being, inclusiveness and diversity. The second thing is we are gonna help design the future of society and work through the fourth industrial revolution. And the third thing is we're going to design and deliver solutions that deliberately look at the finite resources left in this planet. I talk to those three things and that massively, massively resonates with the teams who are coming through as our newer employees. They're saying, that's why I want to work in EY Seren. Not because we work with cool clients and not because we do cool digital and human-centered design. They love all of that. The reason they're interested in what we do is for those three reasons. And I, and I see a groundswell of positivity in relation to that. The challenge we've got is that runs counter to the politic politics of the world, because it's not about the UK or even the US, it's much broader than that, and the rise of technology, which would enable people to ignore that. And I, th I think the counterpoints to that are the, those three dimensions of what people value. All the young people I talk to care about inclusiveness, diversity, and well-being. All of them, yeah. to a person. All of them want society and work to look and feel better because at the minute it's not looking great as they see it. And they all care about finite resources left on this planet. They all do. And if we can draw that out into the dialogue, I remain massively positive about the future of tech to enable that. Yeah. Because I guess what, what technology may take away in certain segments of society, right? I mean, you can really break that down into the recruits for EY, for example, right? Or the talent for EY, Seren, compared to other segments of, of the younger population. But regardless of who it is, I think what technology may take away in terms of, you know, socialisation or, or understanding empathy, you raise an awareness of what is going on in the world, right? And, and as you say... 
you know, like someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, could she have existed pre-technology age, right? You know, unlikely perhaps in terms of the movement she's able to create via technology. And I think, as you say also, um, younger people now are much more concerned, you know, they have a, a maybe a stronger set of values, more purpose-driven. It's not just about suffering through a career. Uh, and you'd hope, and I do believe you, and I take the optimistic view also, that that will underpin any loss in kind of, you know, daily empathetic skills that, that you know, going forward. And, and you'll be at the forefront, right? You know, and we looked at this in a previous episode from the Center of Humane uh, Technology in the US about how technology dehumanizes us in a way and exploits our weaknesses, right? Even on a very basic level, the social media and dopamine addiction and all of these different things. But if you're looking at the, the two DTs, right, which is design thinking and digital transformation, then any digital work that you're involved in in CERN has that underpinning of the humanization because you've got design thinking in there as well, right? right. Um, any thoughts on that or any examples recently? I'm just fascinated uh, in that mix. I think there's a... I, again, remain eternally positive about the notion of a post-like button, post-marketing world. I genuinely think that's going to come. I genuinely think that's going to come. They're like the Darwinism of technology will get beyond that. Because I'm eternally optimistic that human beings are starting to think about the design, the human-centered design of a service is what they want, not marketing BS, right? And I, th- I, think, I, I think that the world is turning, right? The world is turning. It's a bit slow, but it genuinely is turning, and, and Greta is a, is a great example of that. There is a, I believe, and I do believe there's a post-marketing, post-like world in which technology will work for different reasons and different purposes. And so, but the, 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 the way that happens is having organizations who are involved in that process right at the heart of it, who deploy, guess what? Empathy. Because if you deploy empathy into that mix and you start thinking service to me feels like what happened in a world of uncertainty, right? Religions arose out of a world of uncertainty. Like religions where you can argue are a negative force. They're also a massive positive force in the sense of understanding that there's more than just me. You know, like, and you think about the rise of that. That's a service. People go into service. Priests went into service, right? You think about where that word comes from. Uh, and, and, and I think that, for me, is where we're going to go with human-centered design. People will start to think, I don't actually care about marketing messages. They've become so ubiquitous, they actually don't count anymore. And now I'm interested in the service that you're going to provide to me and I'm going to provide to others. That, that for me, is where we're going to go with all this stuff. And AI, virtual reality, all the kind of the augmentations that will arise from that, I believe they'll still, ultimately, people still want that. And it's hard for humans to interact. And crudely speaking, humans to continue to consume services. That's what the world economy relies on. I think that'll turn a bit, and I think the, the big platform players will need to operate in a very different way, particularly when we wake up to the fact that it's our data, not theirs. That's mm. another rise that's going to hit us. It hasn't got anywhere yet, traction, but the notion of my data is my data will allow some of that to kind of correct itself as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that democratisation, let's say, of, 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 of the data. Um, just a final point to... This fascinating discussion, and, and we could go on all day, but um, this is a future vision for you. So, 
what 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 would you like to see for you know Seren specifically uh, and and just more broadly in terms of how that may impact on on the is it just fighting the good fight and just trying to mainstream more of this empathy within business how do you see in the next couple of years planning out for for you guys so I, I'd say, like, you know, I'm unapologetic about growing UI Seren significantly. Um, and I'm quite competitive, right? You know, I, I talk about all the things that I care about, but I'm also ultra competitive and I want to win. <laughs> and I'm unabashed about that. And I'll, I'll use that, which might sound contradictory, but I think the bigger UI Seren is, the better impact we'll have on society. So I, I look at it and say, I've got to scale this out to keep building this build it in a way in which people want to be part of a movement and a manifesto and that's beyond just EY Seren that's the partners we work with and the ecosystems we build which is a big part of what we do but to me we've got to tune into and I think we're at a, one of the most exciting times ever in humanity where I can come into the market with a narrative of those three things it's about the well-being of the individual inclusiveness diversity it's about the future of society work being designed in a human-centered way and it's about protecting those finite resources. And, and if we can deploy that to more clients, more effectively, in more different ways, and we can grow our community who may work for us, may contribute with us, may be part of an ecosystem, just people we know, people we like, and we want to share our, I talk about manifesto a lot. That's the vision of what I want to achieve. And, and I'm, I'm unabashed about it being, wanting to scale that out. Because if I scale that out, having a better impact on society that's the way to do it that's the real acid test though right i mean skeptics would say that everything that we're talking about here and what makes seren special let's say right you know the, the approach to empathy service driven um you know the whole concept of of agency and and we can look at other professional services firms that, that went down a similar route and and, and got this creative hub in that did things differently and even if we look at a lot of the innovation disruption theory it's about it doesn't work within the big the big the big entity yeah. it has to be farmed out you give these guys autonomy you let them go on with it they solve the problems you bring them in now and again so the scalability thing is the real big challenge right um, and, and we're cool right? I'm like I, I can give you all the metrics we grew at 23 percent last year we'll grow at 25 percent this year compound annual growth rate that's phenomenal in a managed way in which we're doing it, you know, in professional services where you still got to get chargeability every week, yada, yada, yada. And I look at it and go, like, I'm totally metrics driven as well. Yeah. And I know we can do it. And I always think, like, the final point I would say on that is our job is to make our clients sustainable on that manifesto. It's not to stick around forever. So I need more and more clients to believe in this, more and more clients to deploy into it. But we're not sticking around. We want them to build their own ecosystems. We want them to have this notion of how this can be different because that's how change happens at a global level and like you know my not a political statement but i think governments are failing all around the world empathic corporate institutions may be the future for this world and i'm trying to build one. yeah and 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 that's great and i think bringing it back to you know the core themes in this podcast and even our first kind of point of discussion that will really help mainstream well-being, which is we're nowhere near there yet. Um, and even I think there's a precedent there in design thinking. If you know, I've always been fascinated with the origins of design thinking. You know, I studied at Stanford 2001, just before SAP gave 
you know, Stanford $35 million to found the Design Institute. But the other factor that, that people don't often think about is the SAP were the kind of first um, corporate entity to really push design thinking as a methodology. So they had that opportunity at the time with their clients and they were an almost monopoly. And they said, look, use this design thinking stuff. So all the clients that were using SAP thought, well, design, th- yeah, we'll try that as well. And that was the other the other point. It wasn't just the IDO and the Stanford thing, right? But it was the SAP as a corporate influencer that really helped mainstream that, right? So I think, I really hope and I believe that, you know, you, you guys can really get in that scaling side of things. And then if you can bring that style of leadership and management and you bring well-being with it, clients you're serving clients right and the clients will bring that on as well and then they'll implement that in the way that they do things yeah. you know so i think that's great um michael many thanks for your insights today and wishing you the best of luck going forward cool yeah thanks for your time as well you've been listening to chief Wellbeing officer with dr stephen mcgregor you can find us on soundcloud apple spotify and other major podcast platforms Please like, share, review, and we'll see you on the next episode.